0: Here's another inspiring speech, recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Good morning. What a way to start a conference. As Dennis said, I, I, uh, I first spoke at this conference, um, how long ago? 11 years? 11 years. And when Dennis invited me to speak again to you today, I, um, I was absolutely thrilled. And in fact, I, I got again uh, that sensation that I got the last time I spoke here, which was an enormous feeling of warmth and support that uh, I'd experienced with this amazing group of community leaders. Um, I've got to tell you that uh, a lot of the work that I do as a, as a business school academic, as a professor at Melbourne Uni, um, I talk to all sorts of audiences, and you're the best. <laughs> uh, certainly a lot of other um, audiences don't kind of get me or get behind me in the way that you do. So I, it, it might sound like I'm flattering you, but it, 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 was, it was it's very genuine. So it is wonderful to be here um, in this amazing group of uh, community leaders. And I hope that some of the work that um, I'll be exploring with you today, this morning... Uh, is very useful in your uh, leadership work. So how do we do leadership in all of the roles that you're doing it in ways that enable, inspire and free the people that we're seeking to uh, support? How do we do that kind of leadership without doing damage to ourselves? Through long working hours, through very demanding situations, through endless to-do lists. Um, How do we do that kind of leadership? Even more how do we uh, take pleasure and delight from the work that we do in our leadership roles? These are questions that I've been exploring for much of my career as as an academic, as a researcher And I'd like to share uh, some of those experiences with you today. Um, I've I've got some some answers, if you like, or some sort of ideas, and many of these ideas revolve around the application of mindfulness in leadership. So I'd like to share some stories with you uh, about how some of the groups of leaders that I've worked with have actually found this these sets of ideas and practices probably the most valuable and sustainable in their day-to-day work. I need to also add uh, that for me personally, uh, it's it's not just a kind of a research journey or a journey with uh, with groups of leaders. Those ideas have been very, very nourishing uh, and helpful for me. So I hope they are for you. So just a a couple of quick things. Firstly, about mindfulness, this is a a word that's got a lot of hype around it, Um, but it's really a very, very simple, enduring idea. Mindfulness is the choice we make to be present here now. So to bring our whole selves, our thoughts and our bodies to this room, to this moment, to this group of people is what mindfulness is about. Of course often you know when we're in situations like this our thoughts are somewhere else and so when we're seeking to be mindful in leadership we're we're seeking to bring our attention, our focus, our awareness to the people we're with at that moment. And this is why one of the um, um, one of the reasons why mindfulness is so impactful potentially in leadership so, whereas meditation is typically a practice where we, you know, we take ourselves off, we take ourselves offline uh, to sit in stillness, in mindfulness we can bring it into all of the conversations that we're having right now, yeah? To the interactions, to the meetings, to the, um, to the work we're doing in the moment. Mindfulness is uh, suitable for it. So, uh, let me ask you... Where's your mind now? Where's your mind now? Great. (laughs) Well done. Um, So what's what's probably uh, worth mentioning is that for many of us at that moment our mind actually was, you know, it might have been back with breakfast, it might have been something we'd forgotten to do before we left this morning, it might be something that's weighing on us that's waiting for us back at our desk or um, at the office. What's important is not the thought or being somewhere else but the persistent and patient effort to bring our attention back to the now. There's lots of uh, neuroscience and and lots of scientific evidence uh, that's been emerging over the last 15 years or so that helps us understand exactly why this capacity is so useful for us. And it's useful for us at many, many levels, right down to the, um, the work that uh, Australian scientist Elizabeth Blackburn was given a Nobel Prize for. And that's at the level of DNA and our genetic structures. So her research shows that the capacity to keep on bringing our attention back to the present actually uh, improves our DNA structures. There was a very interesting study. I won't talk much about the research today because I want to make this a more experiential session with you. But there was a very interesting study done at Harvard University whereby they gave a a whole lot of people some mobile phones. And they uh, sort of alarmed them at all different times throughout the day. It was a big study. And what they found was that about 70% of the time, people's mind and their body were in two different places. So their mind wasn't where their body was. But what the research also showed was that people were most... uh, were happiest and most fulfilled when their mind and their body were in the same place. So some more uh, evidence about the value of mindfulness. Just a quick word about leadership. Um, When I'm talking about leadership, I am, of course, not talking about the position or the rank uh, in a formal kind of structure. I'm interested in the leadership that we all do by way of influencing others towards valuable outcomes. And in my own research, I've certainly been most inspired by the leadership done uh, by musicians, just as we've seen uh, this moment, in this previous moment. So I've been most inspired by the, the leadership work that's often not given that label. All of the work that you do, that may not be seen or given that label of leadership. Indeed, you may not give it that label, but in in very powerful ways, it certainly satisfies that notion of influencing others towards mutually valued outcomes. So, um, let me just take you back for a moment to 2003. Um, I'd been made a uh, professor some years before this And on the outside, I looked uh, a success. Um, You know, doing all the things that a professor does, you know, teaching and researching and going to endless university meetings. Um, Inside, though, um, a profound sense of unhappiness, a feeling that I'd lost connection with uh, the values that I believe were important about education. You know, I found myself caught up Very, very busy, incredibly busy. Um, Lots of emails, lots of meetings, but uh, really a sense that uh, I was failing in leadership myself. I was just going through the motions. Two particular um, behaviours that I noticed about myself that were part of this time. The first was a, a, a process of deferring life. So I'd hear myself say things like, oh, I'll just get to summer holidays and, you know, then I'll catch up with some friends, then I'll start enjoying myself. I'll just get through these next six months. I'll just get through these next two weeks. I'll just get through... And I'd, I'd hear myself saying this. And then summer holidays would come around and and what do you think... What, what was going on? It was just more of the same, you know. So in a sense I had this feeling that I was sort of indefinitely postponing um, the possibilities of uh, of contentment and peace uh, and a sense of satisfaction in life. So that was one thing. The other thing was, um, and uh, just an example, I have four kids and... Um, uh, Charlie who's a bit older now but at that stage she was at school and um, you know he'd be sitting at the kitchen bench and I'd be making dinner and he'd be telling me about something that he was doing in school you know he'd be, he, he's a musician or he's been you know he's interested in massive gorgeous kid he'd be talking to me about something and you know I wouldn't be there you know i I'd, I'd I'd find myself somewhere else. You know, I'd be thinking about the email that I hadn't sent or the phone call I hadn't got to or a meeting that was coming up. So it was these two habits uh, that I started noticing were really pervasive in my in my daily um, actions and uh, I, I, it just wasn't working. Uh, so I walked into my dean's office and I said, look, um, this is not working out for me. I'm going to resign. And he said you know, don't do that, Amanda, let's work out uh, something else. And so he suggested that I take a year's leave without pay. And I did that and spent a year um, returning to finish off some yoga teacher training that I'd started some years before. I had this absolutely blissful year and I can recommend it for any of (laughs) you. Um, you know, immersing myself in a lot of um, Eastern philosophy, a lot of Buddhist philosophy and meditation and so on, um, h- having a wonderful time. Um, and at the end of this year, I, I came back and I had yoga teacher here, business school professor here. Which, which one do you think looked more attractive? <laughs> Definitely that way. But, um, of course, <clears throat> you know, we had to live and... We're dependent on, my, excuse me, dependent on my income, of course. And the other thing that I realised is that... Um, excuse me. There are many fantastic yoga teachers out there. Fantastic. And perhaps the thing that I could do would be to bring, you know, the most powerful and profound insights from that experience that I'd had into, into the heart of the work that I was doing with leaders and in leadership. Um, I I need to tell you that many disasters followed, So sort of walking into a room of of senior executives and inviting them to breathe, (laughs) breathe. um, They didn't like it. It's interesting, you know, for me to think about why they didn't like it. Uh, You know, one of them certainly said, made very clear, he said, you know, I already breathe. Uh, You know, I'm not paying all this money to be told to breathe. (laughs) But I think at at another level, uh, being invited to slow down and notice the breath is potentially very, very confronting for those of us who are running really fast through life, you know running on the, on the fast track. It's a very confronting thing to, to be invited to pause and slow down. But um, the upshot of all this was that uh, I did want to be in the space of being a leadership teacher and, and uh, a supporter of, of others. I wanted to be in that space completely differently after this experience. So I wanted to take off my armour. Yeah? And I, I was aware of how much armour I'd been carrying. I wanted to work not just with my head but with my heart. <laughs> yeah? I wanted to uh, be present in my whole self with the, uh, the groups that I worked with. And I wanted to support um, the people that I taught and interacted with to find the path to leadership that was more satisfying, more nourishing, uh, less punishing and that's what led me into this work around mindfulness. So I'd like to just talk about a couple of practices that I'm hoping might be uh, useful for you to think about and the first of these is this notion of uh, Leadership as being as well as doing. So, what I want to suggest is that <clears throat> more important than what you do or what you say might be who and how you're being. might be the quality of your being that actually acts as a support or an inspiration to others rather than what you do or what you say. So, this is this idea that um, leadership might be about what happens through you, not by you. So, this notion of, of helping leaders see that their value might lie not just in what they do but in how they're being is part of this idea. And um, let me just put a couple of ideas around this on the whiteboard. I know this is old-fashioned technology, but I quite like it. Um, So if we think about tradition... That's not dark enough. Traditional leadership as about the doing, about action, about talking and telling, directing and about striving to future goals. And if we think about um, this is the sort of the look of, of traditional notions of leadership. If we think about in contrast uh, leading mindfully, we're inviting a shift, From the doing to the being. We're inviting a shift from action to stillness. From talking and telling to deep, generous listening. And the evidence is that that kind of listening changes what's possible for the speaker without us actually saying anything. And finally, from striving to future goals to valuing the present moment. So putting a value on this moment, this one right now. So what do you think Um, when I that's very vague, I'm sorry, it's very pale what do you think the reaction of some of my, let's say my MBA students when I suggest this shift what do you think they yeah, crazy yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly that's exactly the response Um, they tell me that it's this side, this right-hand side. Is that the right-hand side? No, that's the left. <laughs> uh, this is where their KPIs are. This is where all their performance goals are, all on this side. And they say, how can, uh, how can I uh, let go of this? What I want to suggest to you, though, is that um, we get really, really caught up on this side. And finding ways to move across to this side actually enables us to do this a whole lot better. With a whole lot more focus and clarity and purpose. So, of course, they're not um, mutually exclusive. But part of what I'm suggesting to you uh, with this notion is that Making a shift across to the being at certain times, in certain situations might be very, very helpful in leadership. I want to um, just give you the example uh, that comes from some of my work with um, doctors and specialists. I've d- done quite a lot of work with um, hospital executive teams and, and uh, specialists and, and, and so on. And um, you know they're a fantastically interesting group to work with. they um, they're very demanding, <laughs> um, especially the psychiatrists. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, one of the things that's very powerful is that they've been taught, and they've been taught, and they think of their value in the doing. And of course, we want uh, medical people to be good at the doing. But increasingly, so many of them in their roles. Uh, are required to do leadership, that is they 're required to mentor junior doctors they 're required to lobby upwards for certain sorts of resources they 're required to affiliate and, and um, support um, their patients it requires leadership as well as the technical skills. So, <coughs> excuse me, and helping them see, uh, see that they have more to offer than they 're doing. is a very powerful thing. Um, I was teaching a group of um, of specialists uh, just as an example and, um, you know, I spent a day with them and was introducing some of these ideas and this um, one woman came up to me, senior specialist at the end, and she kind of eyeballed me and she'd been a a rather challenging member of the audience and I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, what's coming? And she said to me, This is essential to me surviving. Doing more of this is what will keep me alive. And so what she's getting at with that is that under so much pressure that finding a way of moving across to the right-hand side is the thing that's going to enable her to trust herself, to slow down, to offer more of what she's got available, all part of uh, helping her survive. So that's one core idea: the uh, shifting the to the being as well as the doing. And of course, this is going to look different for all of us. You know, it, it it's it's going to be a different bundle of um, habits and ways of centering ourselves. You know, it might be simply. Uh, going around and seeing somebody instead of sending them an email. Uh, it might be really um, bringing our attention fully to an important meeting rather than, you know, feeling as though it's only getting half of our attention or less. But certainly in the doctor's um, case, in the, the case that where I've worked with doctors around this, they are ineffective if they stay in their head. They've gotta, they've, oh, sorry. <laughs> they've gotta bring some of their, some of this, some of their heart uh, as part of their work to be effective in the leadership space. So the second idea I wanted to share with you that comes also from uh, mindfulness is around stress and how we react to challenge and threat. And uh, you know, many of you—I I know there's a lot of you working in the health sector here—will know this this literature uh, very well. And the uh, thing that's been emerging over the last sort of a few years in terms of research is that the um, the debilitating consequences of stress, that is, the the psychological and the physiological debilitating symptoms, are not caused. By the events that happen to us, but by our thoughts and our ways of thinking about those events. So what this research tells us is that, and recognizes is that you know terrible things happen in our lives. Um, difficult things. You know we, we lose people. We families break down. We have we have really big things that happen in our lives. But what this research is consistently now showing is that our um, our response to those events and the consequences on us, psychologically, emotionally, physically, are determined not by the events but our thinking about those events. Yeah. So uh, what the mindfulness research helps us to see is to notice our patterns of thinking about those events. And again, I want to do something uh, over here. On the whiteboard. Oh, that's not going to come off. <laughs> 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 that's, I'll try this way. That's, okay. So if we think of this um, vertical as a level of challenge or our alertness. We know from uh, a lot of work now that, of course, in order to get our performance uh, up, we do need a sense of challenge. We need, you know, some demanding circumstances. We need some things that require our abilities and our concentration and focus. uh, And that leads up to performance. But what we also know is that if we stay up there, the curve sort of looks like it goes uh, fatigue... Illness, exhaustion, and then breakdown yeah so if we stay up here on a in a sort of a um, a physical state of high alertness, a lot of adrenaline pumping around, quite a lot of cortisol and so on, uh, it eventually leads to breakdown what the uh, what the research also tells us, the mindful research tells us, is that we need to work out ways of going up and coming down. Going up when we need to and coming down. Yeah? Um, unfortunately, a lot of us start to get hooked on being up here. But Really, really valuable to work out how to bring yourself down off that, uh, off that stage of high alert. And again, um, you know, one of the uh, very clear pieces of evidence from the mindfulness research is that it's our bodies and our breath that are the gateways to coming down. So one of the many misconceptions about mindfulness is that it's all about what happens up here. Actually, the gateway to getting present is this (laughs) bit. It's our bodies. Yeah. And, of course, all of you, you know, will know that. If you think about what helps you come down off that curve, it's probably got something to do with your breath and your body and your senses. You know, it's going for a walk. It's getting on a bike. It's being out in nature. Yeah? In my case, it's um, mucking around in my compost bin and talking to my chooks. <laughs> I've got a lot of wisdom. Especially one of them. Uh, So uh, important really for us to uh, not just um, tune in to these processes but to help others to notice when others are up here. I've certainly worked with many uh, executive teams that spend their lives up here. State of hypervigilance constantly. And it's really, really bad for us. So that's the second idea around sort of observing and moderating uh, our response to challenge and uh, demands. The third idea is uh, to pick up something that I mentioned earlier around deep, generous listening. And uh, my colleagues and I have done quite a lot of uh, work looking at, at what we call listening from stillness or mindful listening. And, um, you know, the evidence is that this is a really powerful practice to share and to experiment with. And I'm going to get you to do it in a moment. Just as an example, um, you'd probably know that there's a lot of interesting work around mindfulness going on in schools. So a lot of schools now have programs where they teach uh, children to relax and to be mindful. They're the using apps and gathering all sorts of you know, terrific data about it. But my role is often to go in and work with executive teams you know, or, or uh, staff around mindfulness. And believe me, they need it more. <laughs> they need it just as much as the kids. But of course, uh, often it doesn't, they don't get it. But, you know, one of the uh, really impactful things to do with these um, teachers, you know, teachers operate in very, very demanding environments. You know, they're very tightly time-structured environments. And, um, you know, they they get kids coming up to them all the time, you know, knock at the door, can I talk to you, miss? And they immediately go into problem-solving mode. Yeah. And, you know, what helping them experiment with uh, a different form of listening does is help them to notice their usual habits in listening and experiment with something different. I mean, all all of us know, you know, all teachers know that it's the solution that the child comes up with for themselves to their problem that's the important one. You know, if the teacher just says, do this, try this, it's not going to be sustained. It's not going to last you know, the much better option is to try and help that uh, young person come up with their own way forward. So that's what uh, some different practices of listening can do in schools. <clears throat> and just one other context before I get, get us sort of working on this. Um, I was working again with a big group of public health people uh, a year or so ago and uh, we did some work around mindful listening... And one of them came up to me at the end of um, the session and she said, look, I'm an emergency doctor. I think she worked at the Alfred or the Austin, one of the really big public hospitals. Uh, So she's seeing people come in uh, literally life and death, (laughs) literally life and death, one after another. And she said, it's so interesting what you do, she said. One of the things that I've noticed as an emergency doctor is that the one thing people in that, um, in that emergency room want, if they are conscious, is for you to listen to them. You know, that they, the temptation for those doctors is to slap on all the, all the equipment. And, uh, but what people need and want at that most critical moment is for somebody to give their whole attention to that person. Yep. So, um, I'm going to invite you to work in pairs in a moment. So, you might want to um, team up with somebody and uh, it needs to be a pair. So, uh, for those of you who are sort of uh, sitting on the edges, can, can you find somebody just to work with for the next little while? Okay. Shh. Very good. Has everybody got someone? <laughs> so there's a few. See, if, hands up if you, if you need somebody to work with. Is somebody down here needs a partner? Hat. Anybody else? You're still. Somebody down here still waiting. What about one of you over the back there? Would you come down? (laughs) Thank you. So, okay. So this is going to be quite a quick exercise and I'll I'll take you through it step by step. Are we right down there? (laughs) That's, That's good. So I want you all now to think about something in your life, in your professional life or perhaps in your personal life that you're prepared to talk about. Uh, something that you treat as a snake that's actually a rope. Now, those of you familiar with Buddhism will, will recognise this terminology. By this I mean that when an email from that person or a phone call from that person arrives, we think, Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> what's gone wrong? You know, what haven't they done? What do they want? Um, <clears throat> It's one of those, uh, it could be a person, it could be a project, it could be a group, it could be a stakeholder group, um, it could be something you've been working on, a program, where your reaction is, uh, oh, you know, to go into kind of fight, flight or freeze mode. Yeah? So we imbue this with snake-like properties as if it's about to go bang and attack us when it is actually just a rope. Not a rope to hang you with. (laughs) Rope in the sense of inert in its capacity to actually harm you. So I'd like everybody to have one of these. um, And I know you've all got them. (laughs) Something in your life, commitment. I mean, I've had whole classes that are snakes. (laughs) It's not their problem, it's mine, you know, but that's the reaction I have, you know. Um, And uh, it needs to be something that you're prepared to talk to your partner about, yeah. It will be only very quick. So uh, I'll ask in a moment you to decide who's going to speak first and who's going to listen first. I'd like the speaker just to talk about this uh, person or project or uh, program that's a You treat it as a snake that's actually a rope. The more important role is the listening. And so the other part of the partnership, I want you to really listen with your whole still self. So that means no talking, obviously, but also really slowing down your usual cues that you put into conversations. So, if you're one of those people who says, oh, I know, oh, yeah, it happened just like that to me, uh, if I want you to really tone them back. What I want you to deliver is listening from your whole body and from your stillness. Okay? So, again, this will be quite quick, so I'll invite you in a moment to decide who's going to speak first and then I'll get us all to speak together. It'll only be about two minutes. Then I'll ask us all to stop and we'll have a moment or two silence and then I'll get you to feedback to your partner. I'll get some feedback happening. So is everybody confident in, about what we're doing? Any questions? Any concerns? OK. So to the extent you can, turn around and sort of face your partner. I know it's a little bit constrained here. <laughs> And shh, shh. Just working out who's going to speak first. We'll we'll do turnabouts so you'll both get a chance. Just work out who's going to speak first. Very okay, good. So, can we just um, hear a little bit from one or two um, speakers how that felt?
1: I'm talking to my partner. I've got the distinct um, feeling that it's easier for me to talk than to listen, that I've got something that I am almost burdening her with or asking her to come up with a solution with. And I was very unfair. I I lumped her with a pretty big problem. Um, But on the look on her face, I could see Tracy thinking, oh, God, I didn't think she'd say this. And there was almost a role reversal for me. um, And I think that's because in my role, I'm supposed to be the listener. And I do know that it is a really hard role to fulfil. So, it was really good for us when we were um, Mm. talking about the experience of talking and listening that Tracy fed through to me what she was feeling and one of those emotions were panic. We have to, as you say, still yourself and not convey the actual inner emotions that we are Mm. reacting to when we're hearing something, but what we have to do is to find a stillness and try to communicate that stillness back to the person. So, one of the hardest things I found when I Mm. moved into my neighbourhood centre um, community role was, in fact, being quiet and listening and Mm. not imposing and getting impatient um, and trying to help them too early.
0: Sure, fantastic, fantastic. So, w- uh, let me say a few things about that. Uh, that wonderful comment. Um, the first thing you said was that how easy it was to speak to speak when you felt that you had somebody really listening, and that's one of the things that you might notice in this in this process or in this exercise, that. We often don't get people really listening from stillness for us. It makes it easier for us to share, for us to speak, and for us to speak absolutely honestly and authentically. And let me remind you, it was a few minutes. (laughs) So um, listening from stillness can be very powerful for that. So uh, can I hear from somebody um, who was listening?
1: I'm yeah. usually doing all the talking constantly, so to listen is an important thing, of course, and yes. I've actually found it relaxing. Yes. I had to not think about what I
0: was going to talk about in the next minute, like, who was that going to be my thing, because it's going to be my turn pretty soon, and I've got to do that.
1: I could just let that go. How who wonderful. cares if I don't have something else to yeah. talk about? Yeah. It'll come.
0: Fantastic. Another absolutely profound insight. <laughs> so um, what... What your comment um, reminds us is that a lot of the time when we're listening, we are actually doing all of that extra work. We're sort of waiting for the gap. We're thinking now, what, what might I add here? And so the invitation to, again, listen from stillness delivers something completely different. We take all that pressure off ourselves. Yeah? Yep. Yeah? Very good. So I'm going to suggest that you reverse now. Yeah. Uh, so this time, listeners are speakers and speakers are listeners. Yeah. So again, to the extent it's comfortable, turn and face your partner. And let's all start together. <coughs> Off you go. Very good, very good. Wherever you've got to, just fine. Let's just again have a moment of silence. And listeners in particular, just picking up anything at all from having listened to the speaker. good, very good. So now, again, um, listeners, you might like to just uh, feedback to your speakers anything at all that you think might be helpful, any observations from listening? <laughs> very good. Shh. Shh. Very good. So can I hear from um, just one or two speakers that
1: time? Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're all having a good morning. Um, what we had, our conversation was really interesting because when I first started speaking, the eye contact was rather important because I felt comfortable confiding with her because she blinked. And, um, <laughs> and when she blinked, you know they're actually relating to you. So it was a silent uh, kind of response that, oh, yes. I get what you mean. Yes, fantastic. And um, we both had that connection and we were, yeah. we were pretty lucky to be yeah. able to do that. Uh, lovely
0: you. comment. Thank you very much for that. So, um, what, are, what is so great to notice about that is how much of a connection can be established very quickly. Yeah? You know, sometimes we think, oh, I need hours to understand somebody else's issue. But what this shows us that is that if we deliver a good quality of still listening, you can get a strong emotional connection very quickly. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, can we hear from somebody else, either speaker or listener, who had an interesting experience? Yeah. Over there.
1: i say that um, mine was an issue that uh, doesn't bother me like all the time. It's something that sort of only arises in certain situations when I have to deal with this particular person. But when I was explaining it to, to Robert, who we actually worked together, so he kind of we know there's a slightly different connection that perhaps people who don't know each other have. But um, it started to bother me again. <laughs> like yeah. It started to make <laughs> me kind of go, oh, I really hate it when this happens. <laughs> sure. and, it, and it's not something I deal with every, every day or yes. anything. So I was like, oh, yeah. no, this, is, this has come up again. Yes. And it's now annoying me. <laughs> okay.
0: So, yeah, hmm. that's the That experience. was your experience, yeah. Okay, good. Well, sort of good. <laughs> what... Um, You know, what is probably part of what you're picking up is that this kind of listening actually moves us out of here and more down to here. And, you know, always in conversations, it's it's the emotions behind the words that are the much better guide. You know, so when we're listening from stillness, we're often picking up that rather than the patter that sits across the top sometimes. So it sounds like that was what was going on in that conversation, that your partner really could get a sense of the the emotion and the difficulty that was backing this up, which of course then enables us to speak more openly and authentically. You know. it, it enables us to move out of politeness, um, to, to have a more um, connected conversation. So any more com- One One more comment from someone? Anybody else like to... Down here, is there a mic somewhere? Right down the front. Thank you.
1: So uh, it was a good experience for me because normally in my personal life and wherever I go, I always like interrupt people, and I I knew like uh, like people are getting annoyed by me sometimes possibly. So this is first time solely listened. I didn't make like anything. So that gave me
0: this sense that. I know listening is a hard thing to do, and it's a good quality. And when you listen with your mindfulness, you're connecting with that person. So we can actually, so the speaker can like believe that you are listening. That is very important. So that's how I felt for the first time. So thank you and I feel really appreciated that I'm here ah, to do this. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for that. You're welcome. And look, what, what, <laughs> what, what you've identified so powerfully too though is something that, um, well there's several things in there that I want to just um, underline. One is that we think our value is in speaking but your value in that, in that example was in just not speaking, in just delivering your presence. And again, it's rare. We don't get it much. So it's a beautiful gift to give to somebody. Our still presence. It's a beautiful gift to give to somebody else. And it doesn't take long. In fact, what what you might find is that... um, you know, difficult conversations that you think are going to need a whole lot of time actually don't need much time at all. Um, that, it's a, it's a f- fabulous thing and part of it also is recognising that, you know, there may be a whole lot of value that we're currently not tapping in about ourselves and, and about how we can help and support others uh, that is mobilised just through this process of being uh, a, a still listener. So, thank you very much for that, um, for participating in that uh, so openly. Really marvellous. And I, I want to just um, finish with my fourth idea, and it's connected to what you've just done. And this is the idea of leading with less ego. Uh, what do I mean with this? Um, so, mindfulness kind of helps, and certainly helped me a great deal, recognize that. Um, well, to put it bluntly, the self is a bit of a fabrication. What do I mean by that? I mean that, you know, there's, there's often a whole lot of things we sort of tell ourselves about ourselves. You know, I need this, I believe that, I, uh, this is important for this to happen and because this is important to me. Now, I'm not saying here that it's not important to believe strongly and advocate for things that are very important. But I am suggesting that sometimes uh, in leadership, it's really helpful to notice when your ego is getting very involved in a particular outcome. Yeah, and most of us can pick that up. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I uh, taught uh, a group of judges last year, and it was a you know it was a fabulous sort of opportunity to work with a very very intelligent bunch. And, you know, I was introducing mindfulness to them, which was pretty um, revolutionary in some ways. Um, and, and they were f- a fabulous group, um, but they were a difficult group, as you might imagine. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, um, I, I had quite a mixed experience with them, you know. Um, anyway, I, uh, I got the evaluations after the ev- day. And... Um, they sat in my inbox for probably about five days, <laughs> as you do, you know, when you're a bit worried about the feedback you're going to get. Um, and part of what I'm getting at here is that uh, when the evaluations, when I actually did get around to opening them, guess what? They, uh, they offered very reasoned, careful <laughs> feedback, <laughs> which I largely agreed with. So I'd made this a snake yeah, and I'd got, you know, my ego is overly involved in this. Yeah, um, So it's been a fantastically useful thing for me to recognise that always when I sense that I'm spending a lot of energy kind of defending my identity or uh, my sense of myself, that I can just let that go. That I can move into what what you might call a kind of bigger self. and See that um, in a situation like that. Um, well, a couple of things really that uh, to see that it is an opportunity to work with a fantastic group, and that most of those group, most of that group were genuinely genuinely open, which they were. To have compassion for them, gee that's a tough job. Very tough job. But also for myself in that space. That's part of, part of what uh, helps me recognise that. So this idea that um, it's possible to notice when we're occupying that ego space. And there's all, all the clues that, you'd, you know, you'd be able to recognise. You know, the, the same thoughts go round and round and round, yeah? It's very repetitive. It's often fairly judgmental, very judgmental, very self-judgmental, um, sometimes catastrophising. Um, so when we notice that that's going on, there's always the possibility to make, make the choice to not expand, expand any more energies in that circle of ego but to step into a bigger space. And that bigger space is the bigger you. (laughs) You know, it's the the you that's open, that listens, that's playful, uh, that takes pleasure in interacting with others and supporting others. Uh, It's always possible to make that move, to catch yourself in that tight little loop (laughs) where it's all about you and to move into this much more open and enabling kind of part of you. So less ego leadership. I, I absolutely believe it's possible. And uh, interestingly enough, some of these ideas have been picked up in our football teams. Um, it was actually a sort of a term, a, a, a sort of set of ideas that uh, in uh, my books and uh, I found uh, some commentary on uh, British football had picked up some to explain the victory, those of you who enter English Premier League We'll know the victors a couple of seasons back was uh, Leicester City. Is that right? Uh, Anyway, amazing odds. But what they were saying was that they were trying to work with less ego leadership in the team. So less of a focus on the stars. Less of a focus on winning. More of a focus on building the possibilities for all of the players to feel empowered and capable of being part of that team. So I think that there's lots of applications for this this notion of less ego leadership. Thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store, and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit
1: communitiesincontrol.com.au